Hello once again and welcome to the Daily in Christ podcast. I'm Mark Van Oos. We are now in part 18, episode number 18, in an ongoing series through the book of Hebrews called Hebrews, the Glory of the New Covenant. And we are in chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews and we're at a critical place in our study. It is here in chapter 8 that the New Covenant itself comes out, comes into focus, comes to the fore. And the new covenant is powerful. The new covenant is God himself giving all in his son so that we would receive all. I think of what it says in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 32, that says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Romans eight thirty-two is a grace-saturated scripture. God didn't spare his own son. God gave him up. He delivered him up for us all. And it says, if God the Father did that, how would he possibly not with him also freely give us all things? That really gets at the core and the heart of God himself in the new covenant. And remember, friends, when we're talking about covenant, we're talking about a binding agreement that is so strong, there is no Agreement, no contract on earth at any time that is more powerful than a covenant. And nothing among covenants is more powerful than a blood covenant. Remember what we said when we were in Hebrews chapter 6, when it was talking about the promise and the oath. God doesn't need to say, I promise you. God doesn't need to raise his hand and swear an oath. Why? Because God is 100% true. He has 100% integrity. When God says something, he means it. He's not ever trying to cheat us. He's not ever trying to deceive us in any way. So remember what we brought out in Hebrews chapter 6, the reason why God would swear an oath, the reason why God would make a promise, the reason why God cuts a covenant is not for his benefits. His word is always true. But for our benefit, we're the ones who are weak. We're the ones who need strong assurance by which we draw near to God. You know, you talk to the average Christian and you ask them, is God mad at you? Since you've been saved, has there ever been an occasion where God was mad at you, was angry at you, even displeased with you? And most Christians would say with their head down, Yes, but the new covenant says just the opposite. It says that God satisfied all of his wrath, all of his justice on his son. And to say that God is still mad at us, to say that God is still angry with us, to say that God is somehow displeased with us, actually insults the finished work of Jesus Christ, and the fact that his offering of himself satisfied everything, satisfied the justice of God, satisfied the wrath of God. Whenever we think that God is still mad at us, we are actually denigrating, diminishing what Jesus took 
in terms of the punishment, and we don't want to do that. Well, the new covenant is at its heart, God stepping in and saying, I will. I purpose to do something. I plan it. I bring it forward. I bring it to fruition. I bring it to completion and fulfillment. And God the Father did it in all of his I wills through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, as we are in Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to be focusing on uh, the part here that talks about the new covenant specifically, then you'll be seeing the I wills of God. You know, how many times have you promised the Lord and said, well, I I will not do that again. I will try to be a nicer person. I, I will try to be more patient, etc., etc." You know, those I wills get in the way of God's great I will. And we're going to be getting into that more as we get into this lesson. Well, let's just take a few moments right now before we get into those verses and uh, notch it back a little bit into the first part of Hebrews chapter 8 that we studied the last time. And when we did, we were talking about the so much betters of the new covenant compared to the old covenant of law. The superiority of Jesus' priestly service. And the wonderful words that it starts off in Hebrews chapter 8 that says, We have such a high priest, perfect in every way. Jesus ministers not at a earthly tabernacle made by man, but at the heavenly perfect tabernacle made by God. And Jesus right now, as our perfect high priest, is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Remember that that position of being seated is the position of rest. And we go back into what we were saying in Hebrews chapter 4. Why does God rest? Is it because he's weary or tired or needs to recharge his battery? Well, no. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is almighty. God rests because he is finished with his work. And so Jesus right now is finished. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father that is in the favored position. And then we saw the striking verse in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, that says this, But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Wow, look at all the betters in Hebrews chapter 6. Jesus has a more excellent ministry than all of those priests under the law covenant. They were all sinners. They all failed. They even needed to be atoned for their sins. Uh, Jesus is also mediator uh, of a better covenant. This covenant is infinitely better than the old covenant of law. This covenant is established on better promises. And remember, a promise is what someone says they will do. Then we saw in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, the fault of the old covenant of law. Now, the law of God is holy, righteous, and good. But the pro- there's a problem with the old covenant of law. And we find that problem in uh, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, 
That's the problem. That's the fault of the old covenant. Them, us, sinners, self-righteous, self-oriented, self-worshiping sinners. The problem isn't with God. The problem is with man. And remember what we were talking about last time, that no sooner had God provided the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, and Moses was up on the mount getting the other uh, 603 commandments, that the children of Israel were committing crass idolatry. They were worshiping a golden calf in the image of a Egyptian uh, so-called God, deity, and they were claiming that this was the gods who had delivered them from Egypt. They were pagans. They had gone back into crass idolatry. And these people were the very ones who actually said, uh, we will obey all. And a matter of just a couple of weeks later, they're committing idolatry. So there is the need for a new covenant because that old covenant of law had a fault. The fault is us. Because that covenant is a covenant between God, who is perfect, who never fails, and sinful man. And we do fail. That's why we need a better covenant. And the new covenant is a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. It is not a covenant between God and man. Because covenants and blood covenants have responsibilities associated with them. And if you fail in those responsibilities, the covenant is broken. And instead of getting the benefits of the covenant, you get the penalties of the covenant. Instead of getting the blessings, you get the curses. And so this new covenant is ironclad. This new covenant is fail-safe. This new covenant cannot fail. Why? Because it is a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. Someone may say, well, how in the world do we ever get the benefit of the new covenant? Well, guess what God the Father does to us, with us, when we're born again? We are united with Christ. We are baptized into him. We become one with him. So, all of the good of Jesus becomes our good. All of the blessing that his obedience gets, we get because we are in him. I said that in Hebrews chapter 8, in these verses we're going to go into in just a few minutes here, they're succinct, direct verses that lay out the new covenant. Now, Ask the average Christian exactly what the new covenant is, and you're likely, sad to say, to get bewildered stares or wild guesses. I mean, let me ask you, what is the new covenant? Can you point it out in the Bible? Well, probably you can now because of where we're going today. But I would dare say if you were to corner the average Christian, even the average pastor, and say, quick, Tell me what the new covenant is, show me where it is in the Bible, or you die. I would say they would probably die because they're clueless. They really don't know what the new covenant is. And that is incredibly tragic that the majority of Christians don't have any idea what the new covenant is. 
Yet Jesus bled and died to institute this new covenant. If he shed his blood for this new covenant, don't you think this great reality deserves your attention? Let me say that again. If Jesus suffered, sacrificed, bled, and died to institute this new covenant for you, don't you think this great reality commands, deserves your attention? The core of the old covenant is the, the law. The core of the new covenant is Jesus. The core of the old covenant is centered on sinful man. The core of the new covenant is centered on the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The old covenant is a covenant of law. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. C.I. Schofield in his book, Law and Grace, talks about, and this is absolutely brilliant, the difference between law and grace. And this gives us a good sort of compare and contrast between the old covenant, the law, and the new covenant, grace. Here's what Schofield had to say. First of all, he quotes John chapter 1, verse 17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Schofield writes, the most obvious and striking division of the word of truth is that between law and grace. It is vital to observe that Scripture never mingles these two principles. I want to stop right there, and I want to say it again. Quoting Schofield, the most obvious and striking division of the word of truth is that between law and grace. It is vital to observe that Scripture never mingles or mixes these two principles. I want to stop right there because most Christians acknowledge grace. They embrace grace in some form or fashion. You couldn't be saved without the grace of God. And yet most Christians, and I was this way up until about six years ago, most Christians mix law and grace. They mix these two covenants. Well, that is absolutely wrong. It is completely contrary to what the Word of God teaches. And if you've been traveling along in our study through the book of Hebrews, it should be obvious by now why that's the case. Because they're two different testaments. They're two different covenants. How many of you have a last will and testament? This is the thing that uh, will carry out your wishes upon your death. When does that last will and testament go into effect? Well, it goes into effect at the death of the testator. In other words, it goes into effect when you die. Now, I had a will and testament drawn up uh, by my brother-in-law, who is actually an attorney. It was in an attorney's office and fairly formal. But do you know that I could come up with a new will and testament and I can write it on a napkin and have it witnessed by anybody and submit it? And that particular will will, I want to use the word trump, will replace the prior will and testament that I actually had drawn up in the lawyer's office. That's the way these things work. In a court of law, if there is a succeeding will, that will completely makes the first will obsolete and that 
most recent will goes into place. Same thing with these two covenants, these two testaments, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is replaced by the New Testament, by the New Covenant. And that happened, and we're in that era right now and forever, because of the death of the testator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's get back to Schofield's Law and Grace. This is good, but I, boy, I really appreciate the fact that he said that it is vital to observe that Scripture never mingles these two principles, that of law and that of grace. Now listen to this compare and contrast that Schofield draws up. This is brilliant. He says, law is God prohibiting and requiring. Grace is God beseeching and bestowing. Law is a ministry of condemnation, grace of forgiveness. Law curses, grace redeems from that curse. Law kills, grace makes alive. Law shuts every mouth before God. Grace opens every mouth to praise Him. Law puts a great and guilty distance between man and God. Grace makes guilty man nigh or near to God. Law says do and live. Grace, believe and live. Law never had a missionary. Grace is to be preached to every creature. Law utterly condemns the best man. Grace freely justifies the worst. Law is a system of probation, grace of favor. Law stones an adulteress. Grace says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Under law, the sheep dies at the hand of the shepherd. Under grace, the shepherd dies for the sheep. Wow, isn't that fantastic, Schofield? hits the nail right on the head, and I hope that that helps you to begin to pick up the infinite superiority of the new covenant, grace over law. Now, at the heart of the verses that we're going to be reading in just a few minutes in Isaiah, or rather Hebrews chapter 8, is God saying over and over again, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. We are so caught up with our own I wills, aren't we? I will try. Well, anyway, we'll get into that a little bit later. But we need to go back in the scripture to set a little bit of a background because these I wills of God are in contradiction, superiority to the I wills of Lucifer, Satan, at his fall. And I want you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 14 in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. This is scripture that tells us what happened at the fall of Lucifer. Now, remember that there are there were three archangels or highest angels. There was uh, Lucifer, um, there, was, there is Gabriel, and there is Michael. One of those archangels, Lucifer, who was actually a archangel that led the heavenly worship was the one who fell, who became Satan. By the way, the name Satan, the Hebrew is a Hebrew word that literally means accuser. In the revelation, it says that he is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them night and day. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, at this fall, we get into 
or in this passage, we see what it was in the mind of Lucifer who became Satan at the fall. Let's read these verses. Isaiah chapter 14, picking it up in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations! For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High." Wow. There they are, those diabolical I wills of Satan, and the last one, the worst. He said, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I want to concentrate here to the end of our podcast today on that last one. I will make myself like the Most High. That, friends, is the greatest lie of all. That is the greatest deception of all. And Satan has been propagating this same hideous lie of I will make myself like the Most High ever since. In the garden, he said to Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what was the lie? Eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. Later on, um, under Moses, Israel said this. They said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And I just said a few minutes ago, what they really did was they did the exact opposite. They failed, they sinned, they committed crass idolatry. And then Satan pulled the same trip trick uh, to Jesus in the temptation. He said, if you are the son of God, do this. If you are the son of God, do that. If you are the son of God, do this. Do you see it? He's That's a form of the lie, I will make myself like the Most High. He's saying, if you are the Son of God, then do this. You know, that's what makes you the Son of God. Uh, That's what he said to Adam and Eve in the garden. That was at the heart of the fall, the temptation. Eve saw that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she saw that it was good for making one wise. And here's the subtle thing of the whole business of I will make myself like the most high. Satan, when he fell, when Lucifer fell, and of course there was quite a bit of pride that was going on, but you know, there's this element that happened then, and I think, you know, it definitely happened with Adam and Eve, where, and even Israel at Mount Sinai, when they say all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient, is that we see how good and how great God is. And we go, he's so wonderful. Look at the perfection of goodness and holiness and righteousness. And our response is, I want to be like that. Well, that's good, but you don't, you're not that way by making yourself that way. Otherwise, you are the creator, not the creature. First of all, Adam and Eve back in the garden were as much like God as far as the image of God was, because it says in Genesis chapter 1 that God had made Adam in his image and likeness. 
Now, he didn't make Adam God, but like unto God. So Adam and Eve didn't need to do anything. They didn't need to eat anything. They didn't even need wisdom because they were already made like as unto God as much as God intended for them to be in the image of him. Satan, in the temptation with Jesus, you know, if you're the son of God, do this, do that. You know, fallen man echoes this diabolical, I will make myself like the most high. We say things like this, I will be good enough to earn heaven. I will make myself a better person. I will try to be more righteous. I will sin less to make myself more holy. I will strive to be more like Jesus. Does any of this sound familiar? How about I will make myself like the Most High? You know, I have a feeling that some of you are really getting a big aha moment right now. What happened with Israel and the reason why they got the law was because Well, they thought they were good enough. They said, yep, everything that God commands, we will do. No, what they should have said to the Lord was, oh, God, have mercy on us. Please take us back. We want to be in the covenant of Abraham. That covenant was not based on obedience. That was a covenant of blessing. God showed up to a pagan and blessed him. That's what happened in in Genesis chapter 12 in the first encounter with Abraham. You see, the new covenant is not at all about your I wills, but God's I wills alone, and God gets it done. Let me say that again. The new covenant is not at all about your I wills, but God's I wills alone, and he gets it done. Remember, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father right now. He's done. He's finished the work. I know this upends an awful lot of religious teaching that we've gotten through the years. You know, where you got to keep striving and trying and struggling to be more like Jesus. God doesn't want you to be more like Jesus by your struggling, striving, and triving. That would make you the creator, not the created. And my Bible says in 2 Corinthians, and so does yours, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And how and why are we in Christ? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 uh, says this. It says, of God are ye in Christ, who has been made unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that him who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You are in Christ not because you prayed a prayer. You are not in Christ because you walked the aisle to the altar. You are not in Christ because you joined the, uh, you know, the, altar call at a Billy Graham crusade just as I am without one plea? No. You are in Christ because God the Father placed you in Christ. And you are therefore a new creation because the creator has made you the new creation. Oh, this is so important. 
You see, the whole reason why this is true and real for you is because God said, I will do it. Your I wills aren't worth a hill of beans, neither are mine. God's I wills get it done. And see, this places us in an incredible space in our Christian life. Instead of trying and struggling and striving, we're moving from the place of completeness. And that completeness is not because of us in and of ourselves. It's because of the one we're in. We're in Christ. And it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Man, allow the Holy Spirit to bring you revelation in this. It'll change your life. It'll set you free. It'll put you in an incredible path of victory so that finally you can get out and I can get out of uh, a self-focused type of so-called Christianity into a Christ-centered Christianity and then finally out into the purposes of God that he has designed for our lives. Would you believe our time has gone by so quickly? And next time, we're going to pick it up and actually get into the specifics of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. Uh, beginning in verse 10, you can read it on for your own, uh, 10 through 13, the new covenant in specific. But I wanted to take some time right here in this particular podcast to set it up. I really wanted to wave my hands and say, hey, pay attention. This is huge. This is big. I mean, this is going to, this is the difference between a successful Christian life and a failing Christian life. And really, that's a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing as a failing Christian life. The Christian life is Christ Himself alive inside of you, believer. That's the difference that it makes. And it's all because God the Father designed it from before time began. I love what it says in. 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 9, it says this, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us, listen to this, in Christ Jesus before time began. Wow, that's so powerful. Let me say it again. Let me read this verse again. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. That's the Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Let's pray. Oh, Father... Wow, Lord, as we uh, just take our eyes off ourselves and all of our little puny promises and commitments and I wills, which are really just a mess and not your heart. And Lord, when we look full into you and your wonderful grace and we see the purpose that you have established, Father, the I will that you have initiated and carried out and completed, Lord, with an incredible holy calling and grace and purpose that was given to us in Christ Jesus even before time began, Lord, we are speechless 
We are in awe of this marvelous grace. And Father, I pray that you would for us, and I include myself in this prayer. Oh, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would, by the Spirit, reveal Jesus in deeper, greater measure in our lives. Father, that you would illuminate the truth of your word so that we would be able to see, Lord, that through the Spirit you would grant us comprehension of the truths that we have gone through in your word today. Lord, revolutionize our lives for your glory. And we thank you, Lord, that this has been your plan all along. It's been your plan since time began. Lord, you are so good, so good, so good. Father, continue just to unveil and reveal these things to us in Jesus' holy and righteous name, the name above all names, who deserves the glory alone. Amen.